A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Well, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, of course, you would be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. John Kyle. He's a medical doctor by profession who crossed into the mucky business of politics. He serves as a councillor on Belfast City Council and was recently appointed the High Sheriff of Belfast. We'll find out what the title means and discuss what it's like serving across deeply divided communities in Northern Ireland. But first, on Wednesday, the Church of England's General Synod, its version of Parliament, will debate and vote on the Church's posture towards same-sex relationships. It comes after the bishops presented their response to a six-year process of listening, learning and discernment on questions of identity, sexuality, relationships and marriage known as living in love and faith. Understandably, the bishop's response has prompted much interest within church communities. As Andrew Salou MP, Parliament's church commissioner, said in a debate on the 24th of January, people are upset because for some people these proposals do not go far enough, and for others they will have gone too far. It also prompted discussion outside the church's walls. In that same parliamentary debate, some MPs expressed their dismay at how the church's attitude risks separating it from a great many people who might otherwise be part of it, in the words of Christine Jardine, and asked it to think again, in the words of West Streeting. The Guardian reports that some MPs are weighing up several options aimed at bringing the Church of England into line with the law of the land. Now, I wasn't able to attend the debate in Parliament, but if I had been there, I would have said something like this. Christ loves and died for everyone, no matter their sexuality. That Jesus needed to die to pay for our sins is surely the most controversial thing that the Bible says. And what it has to say specifically about sexual behaviour is nowhere near as offensive to us as the central fact that we are not our own masters and that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Throughout history and still today, LGBT people have found themselves dehumanised, abused and killed, often at the hands of those who call themselves the church or by governments and individuals believing that they carry the authority of the church. The church must repent of that abuse, just as much as it must repent of those elements within it that supported slavery or provided cover for violent totalitarian regimes throughout history. It is also true that if there is a real, perfect God, then of course he will disturb and contradict us. Sandy Toxvig challenged the Church of England on this matter, saying, it is very clear that the state Church of England and the society it purports to represent are not remotely in step. Now, she meant this as a criticism, but a church that chooses to be in step with the culture is a church that has stopped following Christ and stopped being the church. Those who cannot understand why the church is in a tangle on this should be much more interested in understanding why it is out of step with society. And those who believe that the church should be faithful to the Bible's teaching on all matters should be more interested in understanding why many people, including some within the church, think differently. When non-Christians and non-Anglicans, and I am a non-Anglican, express a view on what the Church of England should or should not teach, it is tempting to suggest that it is none of our business. But this is the established Church of England, part of the British state, which means that, to an extent, it is everyone's business. 
So is this the moment that the Church of England faces the serious prospect of being disestablished? Leaked comments made privately by Justin Welby himself suggest that he would rather that the Church was disestablished than see the unity of the Anglican Communion threatened. As a political liberal and a Christian who belongs to a non-conformist free church, you'd expect me to be in favour of disestablishment, and broadly, I am. But it's a bit more complicated than that. The Church of England brings Christianity into almost every community in England. It ensures enduring levels of basic religious literacy, an interface between the people and the church, a presence at the heart of our local and national civic life, and a provider of valuable services such as food banks and debt advice. We would miss it, and society would miss it too if it was gone. Yet a church that feels itself beholden to the state will always be under pressure to be what society wants it to be, and therefore not what God established it to be, the body of Christ, which proclaims the gospel fearlessly and offers his love to all. Have we reached a point where disestablishment becomes inevitable? If so, would it be better for the church to be disestablished by the state as it seeks to de-Christianize itself, or for the church to choose disestablishment, to free it from the need to compromise with a world that will always oppose Christ, his teachings, and his followers. If it was up to me, I'd choose for the church to cut those ties voluntarily and to live faithfully rather than wait to be ejected by a state that cannot tolerate the countercultural. Meanwhile, let's dedicate ourselves to praying for the leaders of the Church of England to act wisely, graciously, kindly, and faithfully as they debate these matters this week seeking unity in the truth of the gospel. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest, the High Sheriff of Belfast, Dr John Kyle. Welcome, John. We need to get straight into that title. What does it mean? Do you have the keys to the city? Uh, good morning, Tim. Uh, no, I'm afraid uh, I haven't been given this, the keys to the city, nor have I, nor have I been given a horse. <laughs> but it is a largely ceremonial rule, uh, but it does involve uh, welcoming uh, any royal members, members of the royal family who visit the city, and I will have a, I would have a role just in hosting them and in welcoming them and introducing them. Uh, I also have a role in some in some important uh, civic events, Remembrance Sunday, uh, and in in Northern Ireland uh, we remember the Battle of the Somme it has particular historic significance for us here. So in those sorts of civic events. I would have a role to play as well. Right, it sounds fascinating, but let, let's go back some years, shall we say, uh, about your coming to faith. Tell me, John, how you became a Christian. Well, Tim, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents were both committed Christians. My father taught in the Bible class. My mother was the church organist and choir mistress. Uh, when I was in my early teens, I made a commitment to the Lord, but when I was in first year at university, I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that really was transformational. It changed my life. Um, it, it meant I discovered God was real. Uh, the scriptures, the Bible became much more meaningful to me. Uh, it turned my, I suppose, my priorities upside down. And uh, that, I think, was the turning point for me. Uh, and my life from then on, I think, was focused more on trying to discern what God wanted me to do as opposed to what I wanted to do. 
Now, we're a, a programme that talks about politics and, and faith, and in particular Christianity and uh, politics. Um, but it wasn't politics that you were first driven to. It was into the world of medicine, wasn't it? Yes, Tim. I trained uh, as a as a doctor. Uh, I, I chose to do uh, general practice because of the flexibility that it gave me. Um, I suppose by then I was very involved in my local church. Uh, I had pastoral responsibilities. I wanted, I thoroughly enjoyed medicine, but I also wanted to have opportunity to, to serve within the church context. Mm. Uh, that then uh, led me into, um, I suppose we would call it here, reconciliation work, mm. uh, bridge building between Catholics and Protestants, uh, discovering that there were, that there were Catholic believers uh, who, who uh, believed very much as I did uh, and discovering we had so much in common, uh, which of course was a major issue. That was one of the fault lines in Northern Ireland between mm. the Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition. So being involved in reconciliation work, uh, I found uh, very enlarging, challenging, um, but it made so much sense to me. I, I spent a time in London, then working in an ecumenical community and returned to Northern Ireland in 1993. And I've been here since working then full time in general practice and then subsequently got drawn into politics. So we, we talk, as I say, on this show about how Christianity and politics interfaces. But in Northern Ireland, that brings with it a whole load of baggage as you have indicated so you were drawn into politics but how does that the 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 division that religion apparently has imposed upon the political situation in northern ireland how is that something you can work your way through as somebody who is involved in politics in in northern ireland well <clears throat> that that fault line remains a major issue tim mm. uh, in northern ireland uh, we are still a very divided society we're still living in a post-conflict era, uh, it caused enormous damage. We have many people here who were deeply and profoundly damaged by the conflict that took place. So, so in my view, and what motivated me was, politics needs to be prepared to address uh, the trauma that was inflicted upon, that, that we inflicted upon each other here in Northern Ireland. And I suppose I was drawn into politics uh, through admiring a, a, a politician called David Irvine, who had been arrested on his way to plant a bomb. Uh, he'd, he'd been imprisoned. Uh, in prison, he had a change of hearts. He, was, he became convinced that political violence and sectarianism didn't offer this country a future and emerged from long cash committed to, to politics. And so because I saw in him a sign of hope for Northern Ireland, I joined that party, which was associated with a paramilitary organization, but it had, it had within its ranks people who I saw, first of all, had suffered uh, as a consequence uh, of the troubles. Some of them had inflicted suffering as a consequence of the troubles, but who saw, but who were most committed to conflict transformation, to, to, the, to the healing, to the reformation, to the change in this in this country that is necessary if we are to move beyond uh, what we were caught up in in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And so the Progressive Unionist Party was a party then, uh, not exclusively, but in small part at least, 
uh, formed out of of paramilitary organisations, and yet you weren't involved in those organisations, but you saw some authenticity because of the fact that those people were were involved uh, on on the front line. Yes, I saw people committed to conflict transformation, as we call it here, but also committed to addressing some of the social and economic injustices that there were in society, seeing that that people needed representation politically to address problems like educational underachievement, poor housing, unemployment, uh, health inequalities, many, many issues that blighted their lives, and those needed actively tackled but also, we also needed to be proactive in addressing the trauma from the past and, and pointing forward to a better way to live together, to build this country together and to do politics together. And those people within the Progressive Unionist Party were, to my mind, some of the most thoughtful and committed people in the political sphere. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Dr John Kyle, a Belfast City Council, the High Sheriff of Belfast this year. Um, John, you joined the Progressive Unionist Party, you've explained why. In more recent times, you've switched parties to the Ulster Unionist Party. Could you describe what that was about, how that happened and why? Yes, one of the major issues in Northern Ireland is the Northern Ireland Protocol that has arisen because of Brexit. Um, It is a real problem for many people in Northern Ireland, particularly for unionists, that the unionists see the Northern Ireland Protocol as having altered their citizenship. They're no longer, um, they're being a being a citizen in the United Kingdom within Northern Ireland is different to within the rest of Great Britain. Um, and so therefore, for unionists, they feel that the that the carefully calibrated equilibrium that was brought about in the Good Friday Agreement has been seriously impacted. Uh, by the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's mm. put a trade uh, and regulatory border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the, United, of the United Kingdom. For some unionists, it is an existential threat to them. They see it as being the harbinger of the end of Northern Ireland as a part of the United Kingdom. So therefore, it is a problem. It's a political problem, but it's a real problem. But it does affect people's sense of identity. In terms of of how we address that, how we deal with it, that's where the Progressive Unionist Party and I parted ways. Uh, Many people here feel that the protocol has to to go. We must get rid of it. Uh, I think that's asking for the impossible. I think the protocol does need changed, but I think that we need to be pragmatic. We need to see that there will be a cost to Brexit, but we can we can minimise the, the problems that arise from it. There can be uh, changes made to the protocol, mitigations, uh, exceptions made for Northern Ireland that can ensure that Northern Ireland continues within the United Kingdom. And, and to my mind, and many other uh, unions would agree with me, the best argument for Northern Ireland remaining within the, in the United Kingdom is to get Northern Ireland to work well for everyone. If this place works and works well, everyone can participate, everyone can benefit from it, then that underpins the current status. But what's more, I think that is the right thing to do. As a, as a, as a divided country, we need to find a way to work together respectfully, collaboratively, 
uh, in a way that is for the benefit of everyone who lives here. So, so to my mind, that's the politics of conciliation. Uh, that's overcoming hostility. That's doing what I think Jesus has asked us to do. That's treating one another with respect, with dignity, and then working together for the benefit of everyone, particularly those who are least vulnerable, those who are on the margins, mm. those who are least able to advocate for themselves. Now, John, you've, you've served on the council for 16 years now. Um, tell us a little about what that position involves and the impact you're able to have on the communities that you, you serve, because I assume those communities themselves are also somewhat divided. Yes. Well, OK, it's, it's been it's been a terrific experience working on Belfast City Council. And because of our um, uh, single transferable vote system of, of elections, we tend to have uh, multi-party uh, forums of government. So Belfast City Council has got, uh, I think it's six parties represented on it. But to make progress, uh, we do need to work uh, collaboratively, we need to work in partnership. This is where, where Stormont, where the, the executive has fallen down. They've been, been unable to work together for mm. for many months now. But uh, but I, in, in the Belfast City Council, we've been remarkably effective in bringing benefit to the, to the people of Belfast. But it does hinge on being able to treat one another with a certain amount of respect Mm. While being while being robust in our views, while being clear in our arguments, uh, we do need to find a way to reach compromise, to reach agreement. And I think Buffalo City Council has been an example to the rest of the country of that. I think where you get politicians being prepared to work together, that has a knock-on effect or a ripple effect within the community, where where politicians are. Uh, at each other's throats, where there's animosity and belligerence, that has a negative effect on the communities around us. So, so uh, the, the communities in East Belfast, uh, I think, have been some of the most disadvantaged in the United Kingdom. We've been able to see significant regeneration progress made here. Uh, we, we've seen uh, some really great uh, uh, resources uh, created uh, in East Belfast, but uh, that's been through working together, through finding agreement, and then they're, thereby politically delivering for our constituents, some of whom are in severe stress and under and in great need. Now, obviously, as you say, the city council is, is balanced across six different political parties. As Christians, we're called to love our neighbour, and our neighbour includes our opponent, even our enemy. How do you see in your own behaviour, but in the behaviour of other Christians who perhaps belong to other political parties in the city, how do you see the work of Christians in trying to go about managing those relationships so that people can disagree, but do so in a way which is underlined with, with love and compassion? Well, there's no doubt about it that there has been enormous uh, trauma inflicted on this country. And that results in great hostility, a lack of trust, um, uh, fear, anger. Uh, uh, and and I, think, I think where Christians can make the difference is um, how, we, how we treat our opponent, how we treat our former enemy, how we treat former combatants who have inflicted damage in this place. 
uh, and to do it in, in a way that, first of all, shows that we're prepared to treat them with respect. Secondly, that we're prepared to listen to them, that we're, that we're prepared to build trust, that we're prepared to, to be true to our words, uh, that, that we can be trusted. And creating that culture, I, I think, of respect, uh, of honesty, uh, of integrity, that does open up opportunities to then do things together and and there have been remarkable examples of reconciliation within the city communities that have suffered at the hands of of each other been able to extend the hand of friendship been able to work together been able to get to know each other beginning to to listen and understand where each other's coming from understand the conflicting narratives uh, and then in that way begin to try and create a future uh, together, because ultimately we're going to have to live here. Um, it's what Seamus Mallon called our shared home place. Mm. We're going to have to work out how to live together here in a way that 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 is peaceful, and in a way that takes us forward into a positive and and uh, prosperous future. Uh, that's what people need. But the only way to achieve it is through uh, relating to one another in a respectful way and with integrity. John, it's been a real blessing talking to you. As I say, we on this programme talk a lot about uh, how Christians relate to politics and we often talk about the need to disagree well. Reality is that you're in a much more uh, acute situation than many of us. And so we, we really, really thank you and are thankful for you, for you modelling the Christian faith in uh, a much more high-pressure situation in which you excel. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you with us, John, and we thank you very much for what you do. Thank you, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of, well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt to answer it. So do drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now, this week, Liz has been in touch and asks the following. Tim, do you think MPs should have to pass qualifications in running the country in the same way that people in business and myriads of other careers have to qualify to do their job? She then asks her follow-up, a bit cheeky, do you think we would have a different result on Brexit? if everyone had had to sit a test to show they understood the issues before they voted. Well, thanks, Liz. And um, first on politicians, I think that being in politics isn't necessarily about being qualified to run the country. I, I kind of think that the full-time expert cadre of people um, that we need describes our civil service, who are excellent people, qualified people who have uh, real insight in various different areas of public policy. We are a democracy, and so the people who represent us, the idea of the House of Commons is that we are just like everybody else. We're chosen from the masses by the masses, and we're chosen on the basis perhaps of our conscience and whether or not the people in our communities think that they want us to represent them for a period of time. That doesn't mean, however, that we should um, be contemptuous about wisdom and expertise. Uh, we should value those things and we should seek it. I think that it's also true when you ask the question about whether we'd had a different result on Brexit, I'll sidestep the particular controversy of that issue. But I think there is something about the public being informed 
Um, I often get people on the doorstep who will tell me they don't vote because they don't understand the issues. And my line to them often cheekily is that there's many people who know a lot less than they do, but who vote habitually. <laughs> and so we don't need to be an expert, but we should be open to news and information. It's why Christians should value truth. Of course, we value the truth uh, embodied in Christ and through his word. But we should also value truth more generally, be very suspicious and indeed uh, very, very resistant to fake news. And why programs like this are important. It's about trying to get us to think wisely in a Christian way about politics so that we make our judgments on the basis of reasonable information. I think that's as, as good as we can do. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Let's end in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we lift up to you all those at the Church of England Synod this week. We pray that you give them wisdom, uh, grace in how they relate to one another, and in receiving wisdom from you. Lord, I pray that the outcome of their deliberations would be that truth is upheld and that unity is restored uh, in truth. Lord, we also lift up to you Northern Ireland. We thank you for John Kyle and for his witness in the city council and throughout Northern Ireland. Uh, we pray for uh, Christians of all political uh, positions and all uh, traditions in Northern Ireland to work together to be a powerful witness to your love that transcends all boundaries and divides and that you bring about workable solutions that mean the communities can live together in peace and where the gospel will be promoted. Father, we especially cry out to you today for Syria and Turkey, for all those communities devastated by the earthquake, and we pray for help for uh, all the aid agencies seeking to bring support to the people in need there. We pray for the doctors, nurses, paramedics, and everybody else involved in treating the sick. We uphold those who've lost loved ones. We pray that uh, the truth of the gospel will somehow be proclaimed through the abject misery uh, and devastation that we see there. We know that you are present in the midst of that suffering, and we pray that you will bring healing of every kind. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.